0: To that And with that, I'm going to invite Mark, the love of my life, the tall, dark, and handsome pastor that he is. Jeez. <laughs> I try to do this to embarrass him. Does Gosh, it work? Just go sit down. <laughs> 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 it works. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> All right, grab your Bible with me and open it to Genesis 42. <laughs> I think we're going to be in 41, 42, right in there. Uh, we've been studying the life of Joseph and talking about the ups and downs of our faith and learning that that's, that's how we trust the Lord. We trust the Lord all the time and the ups and the downs. And um, so we've been learning a lot because Joseph's life reveals a lot to us. It reveals that the ups and downs of trusting God happen all the time. And there are moments in our life that are great and awesome and fun and joyful and we're trusting God there but there are also moments where life just really stinks but we need to trust God there as well. His story helps us learn how to stay strong in our faith when times are difficult and times are great. And today I want us to see something important about those dark times and those dark days in our lives. I want us to focus on a hard but very true fact this morning. And that is that trusting God in our darkest days is a commitment to Jesus' lordship in our lives. Trusting God in our darkest days is a commitment to Jesus' lordship in our lives. That's gonna be kind of the theme of this morning. It's my main point, that, that God's always kind of working his thing. Because as followers of Jesus, we are committed to making Jesus Lord of our life in every season and every circumstance. So our dark days are interesting because our dark days challenge our commitment to the lordship of Jesus in our life. Our dark days foster the the deepest questions in our faith. And our dark days can often bring doubt and frustration, a lack of joy, and all of that challenges whether or not Jesus is Lord. See, our dark days require a deep commitment to Jesus' Lordship in our lives, and we see this in the story of Joseph. What we discover throughout life, it's been my experience, I'm sure it's been your experience, we see this in the characters in the Bible those that made God Lord and those that didn't, there's a fact about the Lordship of Jesus, and it's pretty simple. It's this, either Jesus is Lord or he isn't. That's really it. Either Jesus is Lord or he isn't in your life. Either he's on the throne of your life or he's not. See, there's only one option, either Jesus is Lord or you are. That's it. There's only two ways to live while we are here. And when we say Jesus is Lord, it means we are surrendering every part and every moment of our life to him. He's in charge. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of the earth, and he's the Lord of our life. If he is Lord of everything and Lord of our lives, then he is Lord on the darkest days, and he's Lord on the brightest days, because he's Lord all the time. This means he is Lord when we have cancer, and he's Lord when we get a raise. He's Lord at the birth of a new child, and he's Lord during the loss of one. He's Lord at church, at work, at home, and on vacation. He's Lord on the top of a mountain and in the lowest valley. See, we are submitting throughout this study of God's word that there are ups and downs in our faith. And we're called to trust God through all of it. But when we trust God through all of it, we're also declaring the lordship of Jesus through all of it. And sometimes the Bible tells us that there's a test in the middle of that to discover whether Jesus is really Lord and if there are some things we need to work out of ourselves so that we've allowed Jesus to be Lord. Now, what we see in the story of Joseph and what we've been learning is Joseph had a lot of dark days before he got to the really good days, didn't he? He had lots of low moments. But he trusted God in those dark moments and on those dark days to help him get to that point where God would have for him to be second in control of all Egypt. And in those dark days, it, it revealed his commitment to the lordship of God as his life. In a way, Joseph was proving to the Lord that in my dark days I trust you so I can trust you in all of my days. See, he trusted God when his brothers were awful to him, when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, and when he was in prison even though he was innocent. He spent lots of his teen years and all of his 20s in dark days. But he had a commitment to the lordship of God all of his life. Now we see this commitment begin to work itself out during the first words that Joseph begins to utter when he gets out of prison and as he interacts with his brothers and his family for the rest of his life. We begin to see that there was an incredible inner work of God that was being done during his dark days. And one of those first moments is right there in Genesis chapter 41. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis 41, and we're going to be in verse 14 to 16. This is the moment where uh, Pharaoh has had a dream. He's actually had two dreams. And um, these dreams are identical. They mean the same thing. But Pharaoh can't find anyone to interpret the dream. And so he's distraught. He's frustrated, he's angry. And his cupbearer who had been in prison with Joseph and Joseph had had interpreted his dream says, hey Pharaoh, I I remember when I was in prison and there there was a young Hebrew man there who interpreted my dream and it came true. Maybe he could interpret your dream. And so the Bible records what happens next in chapter 41, verse 14. It says, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph And he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it is said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This is the first moment where we see in Joseph's life that he is acknowledging, submitting, and declaring the lordship of God in his life. Where he says, What? I cannot do it, but God can. That's lordship. When we say Jesus is Lord of our life, we're saying, I can't do it, but Jesus can. And since I can't do it, and Jesus can and does and has and will, I will submit my life to him. So Joseph is saying, God gets to use me however he wants. God can do whatever he wants in my life. He's telling Pharaoh that the God that I serve, he's almighty God. He knows what you're dreaming, what I'm dreaming, what a cupbearer was dreaming, what a baker was dreaming. God knows everything, every intimate detail of our life, and he is Lord. Later in the conversation with Pharaoh, Joseph says this in verse 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. More confirmation that God is the Lord of the earth and he can do whatever he chooses. Now, as we read through the story of Joseph's life, this is what we see. We see this pattern over and over again after chapter 41 and before chapter 41. We get to see that in the darkest times, Joseph had a reason that he seemed to always be trusting God over and over and over again. And it's fairly simple. It's this, that God is always there. There's something that we see throughout Genesis in the life of Joseph, and it's this phrase, God was there. One of the things that helps you and I in our darkest days is that God is there. He's always there. This is a theme in Joseph's life in his darkest days. When he was sold as a slave to Potiphar, chapter 39, verse 2 says this, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord was with him. When he was falsely accused and put in prison... Chapter 39, verse 20 says, But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Now these verses are declaring that the presence of God was always with Joseph. The friendship of God was with him. The rest, the hope, the grace, the healing, the contentment of God were all there with him, holding him, carrying him, protecting him. Always there. God always with him now joseph teaches us something very very important about our faith he teaches us something important about trusting god and making god the lord of our life and it's that god is lord no matter what the circumstances are this is what we see in joseph's life that god is lord no matter what the circumstances are when his brothers are mean god is lord When he's innocent but said to be guilty, God is Lord. See, God doesn't stop being Lord of the earth and our lives just because humanity is evil to one another. But sometimes we have this idea that the evil of mankind means that the lordship of God is not available or regular on the earth, but that's not true. God is balancing his lordship And our free will is humanity. And because he is Lord, he gets to balance that perfectly. And he gets to decide how much of our free will is going to happen and how much of the lordship of God is going to happen. Now when you read the book of Revelation, you will notice that the lordship of God will take over the planet. And the free will of mankind will fall to the wayside a little bit more. Because God will be ending our time on earth. And there are sovereign moments of God where we see the lordship of God a little more than the free will of man. And then there are other times in scripture where you see the free will of man and God just saying, okay, I'm gonna let you sit in your free will and try to figure that out. Let's find out if your bad decisions come to a great conclusion all the time, which they never do. And then God comes in and fixes it, right? That's the book of Judges. If you're wondering, that's the book of Judges over and over and over again. You try to figure that out on your own, see how that works for 100 years. And when you finally figured out that all, you, all you've done is mess that up and you come and cry to me, I'll fix it for you. Because God is always there. See, God doesn't stop being Lord of the earth or our lives because humanity is evil to one another. God doesn't stop being Lord of the earth and of our lives when things don't go our way. God is Lord always And forever no matter what now there are other examples of this there are others all throughout the Bible that experienced what Joseph did they understood that God was always with them in fact this phrase God was with him is also used elsewhere in the Old Testament it's used in a moment that God had with Isaac with Samuel with David with Solomon with the tribes of Joseph, with King Hezekiah, with King Jehoshaphat, with some of the major and minor prophets, it's used of Jesus when he was here on earth. This phrase, God was with them, is used on a regular basis throughout the Old Testament. And the concept of God being with us in our darkest days is seen in most of our favorite Bible stories. Let me give you one of my favorite, that we can see God is with them, and that these individuals are experiencing and declaring the lordship of God in their lives. So turn, turn over to Daniel chapter 3 with me. In Daniel chapter 3, we have the story of uh, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. You may know them as um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you're young, you know them as Rakshak and Benny. Those of you that are vegetal people, you understand what I just said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the three Hebrew guys who who get thrown in the fiery furnace. They won't bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot golden statue in the middle of the desert. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets furious with them and is going to um, throw them in the fiery furnace. But I want to show you something, a couple verses in this chapter, because they talk very succinctly about the lordship of God in our life. Look at verse 16 with me. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided that they were not going to bow down and that they were not going to serve King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, here's what the word says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, I want you to notice that this verse is, they're declaring a commitment to the lordship of God in many ways. The first is in verse 16. In verse 16, they say this, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. Why? Why as Christians do we not need to defend everything and everyone that everybody says about Christianity? Why? Because we know God is Lord. We don't have to defend him. He will defend himself. And so it it doesn't matter that we, we have a defense for every single thing under the sun. What, the, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying is, God will defend himself. And you'll see that. And then they said, you know what? God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not bowing down to you. In other words, God always delivers. Here's, here's what's interesting about God being Lord. If God does a miracle and delivers you on earth, great. It reveals that God is Lord. If he doesn't, he's delivering you from death because you have eternal life. Either way, you are delivered by God who is Lord. And then lastly, they say this, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. In other words, they're saying, we don't care what you do to us. It doesn't change that God is Lord. It doesn't change that God is Lord if you kill us or you kill a million people. It doesn't matter. God is still Lord. So King Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? Throws them in the fire. All right, you want to be a stinker? I'm in charge. I'll throw you in the fire. Now here's what's crazy. They get thrown in the fire and the people that throw them in the fire die. The guards that throw them in the fire, the fire's so hot, they die. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are still alive. And then verse 24 happens. Verse 24 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Do you stink at math? Seriously, do you stink at math? One, two, three. Were there not three men firmly tied up That we threw in the fire. They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. Well, then we're really bad at math in Babylon, because I see four. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was there a hair of their head singed, their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Now, many scholars believe that this fourth person was a son of the gods, Not only was he a son of the God, he was the son of God. It was Jesus himself. Preincarnate Jesus Christ in the fire with these three. Now here's what's really cool. As a result of this miracle, as a result of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's declare of God being Lord in their life, Nebuchadnezzar makes a declaration of the Lordship of God. The next thing that happens is profound it may be a moment where King Nebuchadnezzar had his moment of salvation. It says in verse 28, 29, something very powerful. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. Therefore... I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Now, here we have a declaration of the lordship of God by King Nebuchadnezzar. He basically says... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their God is the living God. Their God is God Almighty. Their God is the God who saves. And anyone who doesn't believe in that should be cut up and their their homes should be burned to the ground. Now, let me point out the second part. It's not a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. So when you go to work tomorrow and you talk to somebody about Jesus being Lord and they say no, that does not give you license to cut them in half and burn their house to the ground. I just want to make that very clear that this was King Nebuchadnezzar's idea, not Jesus' idea. King Nebuchadnezzar had a very different idea about the lordship of God than Jesus did. And so I want you to know that our gospel is a gospel of peace, not a gospel of cutting people in half and burning their houses down. Just wanted to make that point very, very clear as we move forward, just in case some of you uh, have a uh, a thirst for um, violence. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. The reason God is God is because these three men, they trusted in him, they defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. See, making Jesus Lord means he's greater than any human authority. It means that if there's a human authority asking you to worship somebody else other than Jesus... That's the moment where we say what? No. No. We worship God Almighty. And we worship Him alone. Because He is Lord. We see this thread throughout all of Scripture. We see it here with the three Hebrew children. Two chapters later, Daniel does the exact same thing in the lion's den. Daniel is thrown in the lion's den. God comes and puts an angel in the lion's den with Daniel and shuts the mouths of the lion's and he's rescued. David communicates this same idea of God being with us in this familiar Psalm 23. In Psalm 23 verse 4, he said, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now here's, the, the, the King James Version says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I kind of like that version better. Like, the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> right? It sounds like something in, the, in uh, Lord of the Rings or something, right? Like the evilest place on the planet. This is what God is, what David is referring to. But here's what's interesting. David says, I can walk through my darkest valley, through my darkest days, through my hardest moments of my life because God is with me. Now, here's what's interesting. David doesn't say because God will rescue me. He doesn't say that. He says because God is with me. Here's the point. David had some really dark days too, and God was with him. Some of the days God rescued him out of them. Some of the days he did not. And here's what's interesting, what David and Joseph and the three Hebrew children and Daniel and so many others communicate to us is it's not the rescuing that makes you feel so good about your relationship with God. It's that he's there with you in that moment, right there with you in jail, with cancer, with a lost loved one, whatever it is, he's right there with you. See, the reason we can trust God in our darkest days is because he's there. He's there with you when you go to a challenging doctor's appointment. He's there with you when you can't stop crying throughout the day. He's there with us when we feel like we don't want to get out of bed because the circumstances of life are just too intense. He's there with us when we're mourning the loss of a loved one. He is there with us in our darkest days and that's why we can trust him because he is with us. Let me point out another life skill that I think we can learn from Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 22 with me. In Luke chapter 22, we get to see one of Jesus' darkest days. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he walked to the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he was hanging out there. And this was a really dark day for Jesus. Darker than any day he had had before this. Um, And it's the moment that he knows that he's heading to the cross. He knows he is heading to people spitting on him, hitting him, Beating him. He's going to be flogged and he's going to be crucified. He knows that this is coming. And so he's he's beginning to process that in his humanity and in his divinity at the same time. And Jesus does two things in his darkest moment. I want you to see what he did. The first thing he did is he prayed, he went to pray. He went to spend time with his heavenly father. And the second thing he did is he surrounded himself with friends. So he prayed and he surrounded himself with friends. Now, I'm not going to acknowledge that the friends were necessarily good friends at this moment, but he did surround himself with friends. Look at what Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 44 says. It says, Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Now let's point out um, a word there and it's the word usual. It meant this was a common thing for Jesus to do. On a regular basis, he went to the Mount of Olives into this garden and prayed. This was a regular part of his life. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. On his darkest day, Jesus spends time talking to God the Father. Let me ask you a question. What do you do on your dark days? What do you do on your depressed days? What do you do on the days that you have anxiety? What do you do on the days that you get bad news? Because we can do two things, right? We can pray, or we can binge on Netflix with ice cream. Right, Right, those are our options, Maybe not everybody does that, but some people do. I go fishing, right? That's my habit. Maybe you have a different one. But normally Netflix and ice cream is a good one. Both have consequences, by the way. If you pray, there are consequences to prayer. The joy of the Lord can come back into your life. The peace of Christ can come into your life that wasn't there before. God can give you reflection and understanding and wisdom about what's gonna happen in the future that can be a result of prayer. But a result of ice cream is just fat cells somewhere inside my body. Doesn't help in any way. So even Jesus submitted his life to someone. Now notice with me, Jesus' commitment to the Lordship of the Father. Here's what Jesus says in prayer. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. This is lordship. This is where Jesus is saying to the heavenly father, you are Lord and I am not. Jesus is submitting his life to the father. Why? Because you and I needed the cross. We need the cross to be forgiven. We need the resurrection to have power over death and receive eternal life. And so the father knew that. And so he's sending Jesus to the cross. Jesus is modeling for us what he asks us to do today. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to do the exact same thing in our relationship with Jesus. Our cry should be as well. Jesus, not my will, yours be done. What do you want me to do today, Jesus? What do you want me to do in this situation, Jesus? Jesus, how can I honor you in this circumstance? In my life, how can I give everything in my life to you and submit it to your will? When we say Jesus is Lord, we're making a very powerful statement of commitment to Jesus. We are saying that he is in control of our lives. He gets to tell us what is right and wrong. He is allowed to change our life in any way. We've given him the right to call us out on our sin. And we will live in the power of the Holy Spirit, not our selfishness. Now, this is hard, but it's the best thing ever. It's awesome because Jesus is loving and kind and forgiving, the giver of hope and full of truth and grace. We're submitting our lives not to someone that wants to hurt us, but to someone that wants to love us unconditionally. This is who we're submitting to. This is what Jesus modeled. Complete submission to the Father in prayer and in life. Now, Jesus also took his friends. Now, if we read the rest of the story, we'll discover that most of the time his friends fell asleep and they weren't praying and we're not going to be friends like that, amen? But I also want to tell us something that I think is really important. On Jesus' darkest day, Jesus took his friends. He took his friends with him. Because friends in the faith are very important. When we have dark days, we need to call a friend and pray together. But we've all been on dark days, right? We've all had dark days. And what does the enemy always try to convince us of? You're alone in this. Isolate yourself from your family and your friends. Don't tell anybody what you're going through because there can't be another single person on the planet that's ever gone through what you're going through. (laughs) Isn't that the lie that he tells us? And then the the first time we talk to somebody, isn't it interesting how it's almost always God does this? The person, the first person we talk to about it happens to be the the person that just went through that last year. (laughs) And you're like, what? Somebody else on the planet's gone through that. Oh, dang it, I listened to the lie of the enemy again. But this is why we need friends. We need friends and we need to pray together. We also need to be the one who reaches out. You know, if we're around one another and we're good friends and we're hanging out together and you've got that circle of friends, you can tell by their body language whether they're not doing okay or not, can't you? You can. You can. You can tell just by the way they walk in the room, whether or not they're having a good day or a bad day. If you can tell that they're having a bad day, jump in. Be a friend. Ask them how they're doing. Move towards them. Help care for them. Pray and do whatever you need in their time of need. Be a good friend. Now I wanna say something that I believe is very important. And I hope that you'll hear my heart and the truth about what I'm about to say. I believe that friendships and the faith will become one of the most important things in our lives as we move into the future as the body of Christ. Why? Because it's going to get harder, not easier. I don't see um, the world getting better, I see it getting worse. I see that in Matthew 24. I see that in the prophecy that Jesus gave us as we move towards his second coming. The world gets worse, not better. Now, will there be revival in those moments where where, uh, there's persecution? Absolutely. But the world will not get better, it will get worse. So that means it will get harder and more difficult for us as Christians, not easier. And we will need friendship, we will need community. We will need strong relationships that keep us focused on Christ and focused on each other and focused on a world that needs the salvation of Jesus. See, our world is becoming more and more hostile to Jesus and the church. This will not change in the future. We don't know what the church will be allowed to do in the future. It's possible everywhere in the world that the church of Jesus Christ will be persecuted in many ways. And one of the ways we will make it through is our friendship. One of the ways that if you do a good study of the church throughout history, the thing that keeps the church together is community, fellowship, friendship, relationship. We've got to learn to foster that better. So my challenge to you is this. If you don't have any friends at Genie Faith Center, you need to get some We need to start moving towards this. That's why we're making an effort to do this this summer and why we're challenging you to go to breakfast with somebody or go to lunch with somebody after church or barbecue or go to the park together. Why? Because we recognize that friendships and the commitment to fellowship and friendship and relationship and relational environments is is very, very important as we move forward in our lives. Now this leads me to the last thing about trusting God in our darkest days as a commitment to Jesus' lordship in our lives. There's also something that is and may become for us the most difficult but the most real way that we will declare the lordship of Jesus in our lives. And that's through persecution and martyrdom. Throughout history, this has been the single most influential way that the church has grown. And it's also the way that Christians throughout time have all, always declared whether or not Jesus is Lord. When a government or a bad leader says, listen, I'll, I'll, boil, it down, I'll, I'll boil it down for you three. You either worship me or you worship your God or you get thrown in that fire, you choose. Okay, fire's good, I'm cool with that. That's their answer. (laughs) You're not Lord of my life, God's Lord of my life. Did you really think that was a question? Was it rhetorical? (laughs) Because God's Lord of my life, so throw me in, I don't care. We could head that direction And that's always been true for the church. Persecution and martyrdom has always been the largest way that we prove the lordship of Jesus in our life. So what would we do? What will you do? When someone asks you to trust in Jesus or not, what will you do? The latest statistics in the past year and a half have been interesting The persecution worldwide has been interesting. There's been about 5,898 Christians that have been killed for faith-related reasons. Those are just the ones that we know about. About 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. In the past year, about 4,765 believers have been detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. 3,829 is the number of Christians abducted for faith-related reasons. See, throughout history, Christians have been willing to suffer for Jesus, willing to die for Jesus. This is the way that we have proven in the greatest way that Jesus is Lord of our life. Because not even suffering or death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know that. And so it's not shocking to us when the world in their evil ways might try to separate us from the love of God, but they literally can't. See, when eternal life is our greatest prize, then death is not our greatest fear. When eternal life is our greatest prize, death is not our greatest fear. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and help me close this morning. And I want to, I want to talk to us just and, and challenge us with a little application. What, what should we do on our darkest days? When you reflect on that, how can we be a direct reflection and reveal to the Lord and to the world around us and to ourselves that Jesus is Lord of our life? What, what should our next step be? B, how can we trust him and submit everything to him? Well, I'm gonna encourage you to do one thing. And that is to submit one thing to the Lordship of Jesus today. Here's what I've discovered about the Lordship of Jesus and trusting in him. It's basically submitting my life to him every day. And every single day, you open your life to Jesus, you're basically saying, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. So you get to do whatever you want to with me today. This day's not mine, it's yours. And I wanna honor you with my life today. So what can I do today, Jesus? that would make you Lord of my life. For some of us, it might mean there's a sin in my life that I need to get rid of. I need to say sorry for it, I need to repent of it, and I need to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, stop doing it as much as I possibly can. For some, it might be saying, Jesus, I give you this situation that I'm in. This circumstance that I am in that's really dark, I've been trying to carry all of that myself all of the weight of that myself and it's dragging me to the ground and so Jesus I'm surrendering it to you today I'm gonna lay it at the foot of the cross I'm not gonna pick it up anymore I'm just gonna give it to you maybe there's a health issue that you need to submit to Jesus maybe there's a relational issue that you need to submit to Jesus Maybe there's something in your life, there's a way in your life, in a relationship that you're not honoring Jesus and you know that you need to work that out with him. And you need to say, Jesus, I need to change, I need to change this one thing in my life. It's gonna be a big step, but I need to change it so that you know that you are Lord of my life. And so I wanna wanna ask us to stand right now. And we're gonna sing this song again available and what I want you to think about while while we're singing this song is what's the one thing that you could submit to him that you could give to him and say Jesus this is what I'm going to give you so that I can prove to you that you're lord of my life here's what I've discovered if you do that every day that's lordship so today I'm going to do that I'm going to make Jesus my lord I'm going to do that tomorrow too And I'm going to do that every day this week and next week and next month and next year and for the rest of my life. That's Lord's team. That's saying, Jesus, I'm submitting my life to you because you are Lord. Your will, not mine.